son and the couples down here, that'll be viral within hours. We'll put it on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and everything else that's out there. And it was a great time, great fun, and uh, I'm excited about this. This is, a, this is a great model for other states around the United States to have something like this, and it's, it's a little unusual to find churches not only cooperating, but actually smiling about it. That's pretty good. And to find all the, all the young people that are here, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be here. I'm in Idaho, and I'm originally from Georgia. I preached back in my home state um, oh, about a year ago in February. They had me come back and preach to the independent Baptist fellowships that come together for a two-day meeting. And uh, there were 14 present. I think there are 21 in the state, but there were 14 present at that time at that two-day meeting. And so it's a little bit different in Idaho than it is in Georgia. In Idaho, we have one fellowship and 14 preachers and instead of 14 fellowships. So it's a little bit different there. And so I enjoy this. I like when I get out and, and, and I see a, a crowd getting together. That's always exciting to me. And uh, we're sort of pioneering some things in Idaho there. We started the first uh, youth camp in the state, Sawtooth Baptist Youth Camp, and we've been going now for six years. And God's been good to us. We've had some young people saved, had some young guys called to preach, and some girls that have surrendered their life. And so... It's a pioneering work. We've had to change locations once already, but uh, it's, it's just good. God's been good, and we're excited about it. I've been involved in a camp in Georgia. I just preached last summer my 35th straight year there, and uh, so uh, it's a great time. So we went out to Idaho with the hope and intent of, of building there what we had back in Georgia and, uh, and so God's doing it. So I'm grateful for that. If you would, and you think about it, pray for the work there in Idaho. And not just my church, but all of the guys that are out there sort of, um, sort of, you know, blazing a little bit of a trail there. Our church was the first Baptist church started in our section of the valley in 99 years. And so it's a, it's a bit different there. You don't have these types of fellowships. So listen to me. You, you'll look back on this one day and you'll remember the good times. Don't take this for granted. It's not everywhere. The fact that you have a pastor and a youth pastor that love you enough to bring you to a place like this. You're here, you're here in a group where you don't have to be different. You can be spiritual and amongst other people that want to have the same desire and the same goal that you do. So I like that. So don't take that for granted. And I want to thank you, Brother Doug, and others for the opportunity to be here. Thank all of you preachers, you pastors. And i got a lot of churches here that I, I know the pastor and, the, and, and are friends with the people. I'm grateful for all of you, and, and thank God for everybody that's invested in this. I want you to open your Bible to the book of Psalms, and we want to look at the 123rd Psalm, Psalm 123, Psalm 123. Now, there's a little bit of history behind this psalm. As you read it, You'll see above the psalm, right underneath Psalm 123, it says, A Song of Degrees. Now, we know that the book of Psalms was sort of the hymn book of the Jewish people. These, these, are, these are verses that are written to be sung. And in this particular psalm of degrees, it doesn't mean that the man that wrote the psalm, his last name was Degrees. It means simply that they don't know who it is that, that, that wrote this particular psalm. David wrote 73 of the psalms, but there are 50 psalms that there is no human author actually identified by. Is this, this psalm was called by old authors the Oculus Sperens. That means the eye of hope. And scholars that have studied the psalms and tried to trace their roots believe that Psalm 123 was written by King Hezekiah when the Assyrian army had laid siege to the, the, the uh, Jewish people, had sent Sennacherib, the, the uh, uh, leader of the army, um, and, and uh, had uh, Rabshakeh, the general, they had, they had laid siege to the army. And uh, Sennacherib had sent Rabshakeh to intimidate the people and and so he comes and makes the big announcement, and, and, and uh, the army of Assyria has, had laid siege. There's no way in. There's no way out. There's, there's, there's a very bleak future ahead of these people. In fact, he's threatening them, and he's giving a list of the cities that they've already conquered. 
And so as the people look out over the walls, they're staring out of this army that's already conquered so many, many other city kingdoms who had thought they could stand against them but could not. He's giving them a list of all the kings that fell, of all the people who who worshipped other gods and yet they fell, and they called on the name of their god, and yet it was an abject failure. And so all of these kingdoms he's telling them about, everybody thought they could withstand us, and not one single army has ever defeated ours. Pretty bleak. And so Hezekiah begins to pray to God. In fact, he takes the threats of the Assyrian leaders and he lays them out before God and he says to the Lord, Lord, would you read this? Would you look at this? Would you, would you, read, would you, read, would you read the threats and the things that are going on that they said about us? So he, he lays it out before God and he makes what is a very profound and powerful prayer before God. Well, in that time, when all of this was collapsing upon him, they tell us that it was he that sat down with pen and paper in hand and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God poured his soul out. This is a raw psalm with, with deep feelings as you read it. And so this Psalm 123, I want us to read that with the thought of, of this army surrounding Jerusalem and, and the heartbeat of a king who is fearful for his people and desperate for God to give him some answers. Verse number 1, Unto thee I lift up mine eyes, O Lord, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Let's pray. Father... I pray tonight in in what is a very unusual message that you would do something unusual. No doubt in my mind, Lord, that you would have me preach this, and certainly wasn't my intent or my plan, but I know, dear God, that I'm preaching tonight the message that you would have. And so still our hearts, take this, would you please, and give it to every heart who is stirred, who is scared, those that, that, that down in the hidden recesses of who they are, they embrace a fear for some reason or another, just like that of King Hezekiah. Do for us tonight in this meeting, Lord, what only you can do, and we'll give you the joy and the praise and the glory for all of it. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. One of the great joys of my life, one of the privileges of my life, was that for 20 years I had the opportunity to teach high school history uh, um, at a school there in Georgia, a Christian school there in Georgia. One of the great thrills of my life. I, I love history, loved it from the very earliest ages of my life. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, which is a historic town. And, and uh, man, I, I, I played on battlefields. I often tell people that I played on fields where grown men died. And, and uh my house was right down the road from an old Indian settlement. We found Indian pottery and arrowheads, and I found Civil War cannonballs and bullets, and the streets of my city still have cobblestone from the Revolutionary War. So I, I grew up sort of entrenched in an area that's dripping with history and fell in love with it and, and, and not only excelled in it in school, but then I had the opportunity to teach, uh, uh, to teach uh, uh, high schoolers of it. My, my oldest daughter... Uh, right now is the head of a history department, department in a large Christian school there uh, in, in Idaho, and, and she directs that, and all of my children share our, our, my passion for history. At, at, um, we, we often send each other texts about books we've read. In fact, at Christmas time when we meet at my house, some of the gifts that we will exchange will be history books, and so it's a big part of our life and always have been. One of my favorite characters of history was a man by the name of Winston Churchill. He was the Prime Minister of England during the uh, Second World War and, and uh, made such a profound uh, uh, impact not only on England but on the entire world. In fact, I would suggest to you that, that the world owes 
Winston Churchill probably more for the freedom of the civilized world than any other man of the 20th century. It was his resolve that withstood Adolf Hitler and, and bought enough time for the new world, America, to enter into that war and step in and rescue the old world, England and France and the other nations. And so he was an amazing man. I visited London, England and had the opportunity to go down beneath London into uh, the storm shelters where Churchill and his men held their war room. And I've stood in the room where he mapped out. I've sat in the chairs and, and uh, seen the room where he slept. It was that underground London where, where these men would gather together and direct the British military strategy. And as I stood in those rooms, I was well aware of the fact that I was standing where history was made and where decisions were made that saved freedom and where a great man once walked. Winston Churchill, make no mistake about it, was one of the great figures, one of the iconic individuals in all the history of the world. And yet as great a man as he was, Churchill had something that would plague him from time to time that he called the black dog. He would write in his journals, the black dog has been with me for two days and I wish it would leave. There would be times he would refer uh, in conversations with people and they would ask him how he's doing and he would say to them almost in a mumble, I'm doing well but I just wish the black dog would leave and not visit me any longer. During those long, hard days, there were times that he would tell his wife that he was plagued by the black dog and he would go down into the, the, the underground of London and had a cot there. And while she slept in their home, he would sleep down there just wrestling and struggling with, with this black dog that, that, that plagued him so often. He was referring to a mood of despondency, a mood of absolute despair, a depression that Churchill struggled with almost all the days of his life. The weight of the world upon his shoulders. The weight of the civilized world upon his shoulders. And he struggled with these moods that would come over him. By the way, Churchill was not the only person of notoriety in history that struggled with what one writer describes as on the edge of darkness. He wrote a book about his life, said, on the edge of darkness. I, I live sometimes on that edge, he said. Calvin Coolidge, President of the United States, Beethoven, Michelangelo, Sir Isaac Newton, Abraham Lincoln wrote one time and said, you, a man can be as happy as he chooses to be. And yet it's funny to me, writing a statement like that, that Lincoln himself struggled with what they called in that day the melancholy. Again, another man with the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he would sit for hours and watch the crackling of the fire in the White House and go into deep reflection and oftentimes suffered from mood swings. People have studied him in the after years, of course, with, with, with modern technology, and, and, and they've concluded that if Lincoln lived today that uh, he would be considered clinically depressed. He was then called melancholy. Now, there was a time in Christianity when the word depression and the idea that someone would struggle with, with thoughts of, of depression and despair and despondency, it was considered to be extremely unspiritual. And in fact, this is the first year I've ever preached this message. This is the first time I ever brought this type of a message at a teen camp, and I did it throughout the summer at the camps that I preached. And it was, it was unique to me to watch the responses. Because the old guys and some of the leaders would sit there, and I could tell by the demeanor on their face that they were like, nah, this isn't needed. And then invitation time came, and, and the tears and the despondency, and even sometimes from adults who came and, 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 and said for the first time in their life they had heard somebody deal with a subject that they had struggled with all of their life. 
And, and for some reason, because we are a conservative, Bible-believing, fundamental group of people, we, we, we have a tendency sometimes to, um, to, to ignore things as they are and embrace life as it is not, as we wish it were. And, and so people who struggle with depression, who battle these types of things, oftentimes cannot find in our church any counsel or any comfort or any release or anyone even sitting down willing to listen because if we confess, I battle with depression, then we are immediately labeled for some reason as being unspiritual. No, no, no. If you've got heart problems, we'll pray for you. If you have cancer, we'll fast for you. If you break your leg, we'll visit you at the doctor and hope your leg heals up. If you've got a gallbladder going bad, uh, listen, we'll hang in there with you because a lot of us have had that happen too. So there's a lot of sympathy for a lot of things. But if it's something going on between the ears, we think something's whacked out. And it's taboo. I'll pray for you if you have a physical illness, but if for some reason your thinking is off, don't bother me. I, won't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And a lot of times it's because of the awkwardness of the fact that not only we know, not know how to deal with it, but we don't even recognize that it's real. And so for the first time this year, I started dealing with this subject at teen camps, and I began to preach them. And the reason I did is because so many things have changed in our world since the early days when I was a youth pastor and preaching youth meetings. Things have changed, and for whatever reason you might want to think they have, there's no denying uh, that they have changed. The, the most, listen to me, look at me, young people, listen to me. The most vital real estate in the entire world is the gray matter between your ears. That is the most important real estate. Here's the deal. As a man thinketh, so is he. And the reality of the matter is this. Your heart, we're not talking about the blood pump. We're talking about, we're talking about the frontal lobes here of the brain. We're talking about the, the, the inner recesses of who you are, where you are, your seat of emotions. It's the cockpit of your airplane. This is the steering wheel of your vehicle, the, the you. This is where you think. This is where you feel. This is where your emotions are. And the reality of the matter is this. God wants to be in control of that, and so does Satan. And so the, the battle for the mind, the battle for the mind of young America is on. And, 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 and there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great war raging over that. I want you to listen to a few statistics. I know they can be cold sometimes, but, but think about the lives behind all of this. Depression, uh, the rate for depression for ages 12 through 17 has risen 63%. Uh, since 2013. Girls, for some reason, suffer a higher rate of depression, probably because they take things in a deeper manner, but they suffer a higher rate of depression than, than boys do. But the rise of depression is, is, is going on in both genders. Depression increases a teen's risk for attempting suicide 12 times. A kid who is depressed and battles depression is 12 times more likely to disregard the value of his own life than somebody who has a good mental outlook on things. 30% of teens with depression also develop a substance abuse problem. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for college-age youth and, and for ages 12 through 18. More teenagers and young adults die from suicide than from cancer, heart disease, AIDS, birth defect, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, and chronic lung disease combined. Each day in our nation, there are an average of 3,041 suicide attempts by young people in grades 9 through 12. And I remember when I was a teenager in high school, a guy that played defensive back on the football team that I played, I remember the shock that, that tremored through our, 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 our youth department as this young man uh, took his own life. And I remember as a young, listen, a 17 years old, I remember sitting there thinking, why? How do you get to a place to where you so devalue who you are and you see such a hopeless tunnel ahead of you? Where and how do you get to the place? The way you think it's not worth living. It's tragic, but it happens all over 
the United States of America. Now, in a crowd this size, you're here and you're struggling. And it's not visible, but, but, but you're, you struggle with your mind sometimes and, and the thoughts of, of whether you're worth anything. And, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, why, why those thoughts come to our mind. But it's not about your smile. It's, it's, it doesn't mean you never smile. It just means that down deep inside of you, there's a struggle and there's a, there's a mood that sets in on you. And you wonder whether it's worth taking the next step. And, 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 and even though you're at a youth rally here and you're, you're having a great time, when you go home at night and the lights turned out, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dark cave that you go into and your thoughts aren't always good thoughts and, and, and it plagues you. And the reality of the matter is simply this. It probably touches every single life somehow. You may be blessed to not struggle with that. But it could very well be that someone in your family, it may be a mother who has in the medicine cabinet uh, in the bathroom, she's got some pills she takes to keep her functioning. It could be a dad that somewhere down the line uh, got to a place to where he felt like that, that, that life was so bleak and so bad that he couldn't live without a bottle of liquor somewhere. It could be a brother or a sister that go into deep mood swings. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you, Almost every single family here, without exception, has somebody in that family that struggles with depression. It's real as a broken leg. It's as real as a heart attack. It's as, it's as much a part of reality as cancer as it touches into our families. Now, the first thing I want to say to you, simply this, is that you're not alone. Now, here's, here's Hezekiah. He writes Psalm 123, and he begins by begging for mercy. Dear God... We're filled with contempt. Lord, look at what they are doing to us. We're in trouble. We've got a problem. God help us. But did you know this? That Hezekiah is not the only guy in the Bible that struggled with his his moods and depression. He's not the only individual that battled with it. And by the way, one of Satan's greatest tactics is isolation. And if he can get you to feeling like you're the only one, you're the only person, I can't say anything to anybody because nobody else feels this way, Listen, he can get you that way. If he can isolate you, then you'll never get help off over on your little island hiding behind a, a smile that's not real and yet harboring down deep inside some, some very deep feelings. Elisha was under a juniper tree after the, the high of a great victory over Jezebel and the false prophets of Balaam. And yet there was Elijah. By the way, he had no desire for food. He didn't want to eat. He, he, he had no real ability uh, uh, for, uh, for the things that we would normally take to sustain life, and he harbored a death wish. God, I wish I had never even been born. That's the man of God. That's Elisha. I think of David in, in, in Psalm 42 three times. Three times in Psalm 42, David writes, and he said, My soul is cast down. That's the seat of the emotions. My emotions are rock bottom right now. Things are happening in my life. Lord, I'm cast down. Oh, my soul, why art thou cast down? Hope in the Lord. Why do I feel this way? Why am I struggling? Read the book of Psalms. They're an absolutely raw book of feelings where David, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, pours this out before God. He's jealous at people that are, that are, that are succeeding in life and yet aren't living godly. And David's wondering, this isn't fair. Why is this happening? And all of these comparisons in David's life bring him to a point where his soul is cast down. In Psalm 55 David uh, confesses that he, he wishes he could sprout wings and go into the wilderness away from the maddening cry of the life of the king. That's King David. He's a great man. And yet David said, there are often times in my life when I find myself cast down. You think about King Saul. What a classic picture of somebody... That, that, that battles with that depression in his life. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, I'm cast down. And we say, oh, he's talking about physical. No, no, no. There's a lot more to it there than just the physical. Study the verse. Paul said, I've been cast down. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotion. Not just that I'm persecuted. 
Not just that I'm troubled. Paul said, I am cast out. It's not over for me. But Paul was confessing the fact that there were things in life that, that, that penetrated. You know, sometimes that, that armor, we, sometimes we build people into who we want them to be. Paul's a Marvel comic character with superpowers. No, that's not Paul. He's flesh and blood. Elijah, flesh and blood. Elisha, flesh and blood. Samuel, flesh and blood. Moses, flesh and blood. As we read these people in the Bible, they were people that had feelings that were similar to us. And listen, what you have to realize, if you're here and you struggle with these things, you've got to realize that you are not alone. There's a Bible full of people that struggled with their emotions. You're not alone. And, and, And listen, your depression... And your despondency and your despair need not be fatal. It's not something that has to stuff the life out of your life. And, and I, think of, I think of Hannah. She was depressed because she couldn't have children. I think of Rachel. She was depressed because she bore the stigma of being barren and her sister Leah was fruitful. And, and then, man, when I read, I read the book of Job... And we criticize his friends. You realize that Job was the greatest man of his day? He was the most respected man in the entire region. And so Job's got trouble. He loses all of his kids. He's sitting out somewhere with his body broken and bruised and boils breaking out on it. And his friends say, we're going to go sit with him. So they come and sit with him. Now, don't listen to me. They were friends because the Bible said they were. And they sat with him for seven days and never opened their mouth. They never said a word. They sat with him in his pain, in his misery, and in quietness they identified with him. Why did they speak? Job chapter 3. It's the rawest chapter in all of the Bible. Job is literally vomiting out his anguish and his pain. He's lost all of his kids. His life was falling apart. And when you read Job chapter 3, you find a man that's been swallowed up by his despondency. And you can't read that any other way in Job chapter 3 than realizing that the emotions of Job have absolutely hit rock bottom. He so wishes that he had never been born. Now I want you to look at me. Listen to me. These are not people that were off their rocker. These aren't people that had a mental illness. These are people that struggled with problems in life and didn't quite process them perhaps properly, and, and yet they were real struggles that they were engaged with on the inside. And, and so depression and despondency and despair isn't a disposition of the weak-minded and the emotionally unstable. It doesn't even mean that you're unspiritual. It just means that you're dealing with things and you learn how to need to learn how to deal with them perhaps from a different perspective and, and, and a little better. And, and people can help you with that if you'll just turn to them for, for your help. Just because you struggle with depression and struggle with those types of things in your life doesn't mean God can't use you and it doesn't mean that God won't use you. Some of the greatest men that I know today... Preachers who I could call their name and every man in this building would know them have talked with me about the inner struggle of depression in their life. Charles Spurgeon did. You talk about the Prince of Preachers, the Baptist preacher from London, England that was known in his day as being the man, the Prince of Preachers, they called him. And yet Spurgeon struggled sometimes with those deep moments in his life. And, and so I want you to know that you're not alone. second thing I want to say to you tonight is that you need to identify the source of your gloom. If you've got, if you've got depression in your life and there's something that's deeply disturbed, you've got, to, you've got to pinpoint that. You've got to find out where it comes from. What's the reason? Why is it there? As we read this, we know with Hezekiah that Hezekiah's life was overwhelmed. He was smothered by struggles and trouble and uncertainty. He had the responsibility of a nation upon his shoulders, and now all of a sudden there are people that's laying siege to it, and Hezekiah said, I don't have the answer. And sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in dark places simply because we're presented with problems and, and there's no answer to them. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I want to say that there are, there, there are things physically that can cause depression in our life, and there are imbalances and things like that. But I want to tell you, 
if, if you'll just be honest about it, I, I talked with a doctor one time because they had given me some medication. They sent me for three months into a downward spiral that, that I had no idea what was going on. It was something very simple called a beta blocker that they gave me for blood pressure. And, and my life began to change. We'd sit at a table and joke and I wouldn't laugh. I remember my mother talking to me. I want to hear my mother's voice. I remember Susie, my wife, talking to me, and I, I really, I, it, was just, it was just irritating. I couldn't stand to be in crowds. And for three months of my life, I, things in my mind began to get discombobulated a little bit. So I went to a doctor, and I sat down with him, and I said, I, I don't want, and here, here's, here's, that old, here's that old thing. I, I said, I don't, want to, I don't want to say I'm depressed, but something's wrong with me. And this is what I said to him. Some, for some reason, my personality, the edge of it, has been shaved off. And he didn't bat an eyelash. He said to me, he said, oh, it's your medicine. I said, pardon me? He said, it's the medicine that another doctor gave you. He said, most doctors don't have a background in, in pharmaceuticals. He said, I grew up in pharmaceuticals in my, in my industry. And he said, so I know, I know what medicine causes. Your medicine, if you'll read the symptoms of it, one of the leading causes of depression can come from the medicine you take. And I got back and read it, and the medicine that they were giving me could cause suicidal thoughts and depression. So I told him, I said, I want, I want off of it. I'll deal with my blood pressure another way. I want, I want off of that stuff. And he took me off of it, and it was like a heavy fog, a heavy cloud that had settled in over my life, lifted. And, and, and so I, I want you to understand that I realize there can be some physical issues that need to be dealt with in a professional manner. Another reason why we are oftentimes, especially as young people, depressed is because we get into the trap of comparison. We compare ourselves with other people, and it's, it's, such, a, it's such a subtle sin. Comparison is determining where I am based on where everyone else is, and Satan uses that to such an effective extreme in the life of young people. We, we look at others to see how we measure up with where they are and what they've accomplished and what they own and when we do that, we lose sight of the blessings of God in our life and how that God is using us and how God has made us. And by the way, social media makes that so much worse. People get on Facebook. You know what? You can post yourself to be anything you want to be on Facebook. And only those closest to you will know it's all a sham and all a lie. I know people whose marriages are falling apart, and they're on there just thanking God for the years they lived together and had such a good life. And I'm reading that, and I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? This family is shattered. And yet on Facebook, my word, listen to me, leave it to Beaver. The Cleaver family's right there, all live and in person. So, so people aren't everything they post to be on social media. And sometimes we compare our everyday life with somebody else's highlight reel. And we see the things that they're highlighting and we wonder why it is that, 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 that they've got it so good and, and we've got it so bad. And the reality of the matter is you don't really know what's going on in the life of people on Facebook. So be careful with social media because it can get you into a trap of looking at what the image that people post and you can, by comparison become depressed over that. We compare our bodies, our jobs, our families, our skills, our stuff, our intellects. Are we as smart as they are? And we're trying to find satisfaction by one-upping the next guy, by being a little better than he is, and it builds jealousy and pride or shame, one or the other, and, and that obsession uh, with, with, with others in that comparison we lose sight of our purpose and our mission to please God. I'm not so much concerned when I'm looking at everybody else and how I measure up to them. I'm really not so much concerned with Him. I've lost sight of Him in, in my comparison. We, we fall into the trap to do that. Let me click this back on. I have a pastor friend. You would think that maybe pastors had gotten to a place to where uh, those kind of things didn't bother them. But do you know what bothers people in the ministry? How big is your church? How are you doing, brother? I was in a meeting one time where a church had given a church had given the pastor, the evangelist that was visiting, he pastored the church, and he was talking about everything his church had done for him. Man, he had a four-wheeler, they bought him, and 
bought him a brand new car, and he was talking about what all the things that they had done for all the perks that this rather large church had done for their pastor. And the, and the, and the host pastor for whom he was speaking, you could almost see him deflating. And after that, he resigned his church and left that part of the world ministry-wise all because of the fact he was so bothered by the comparison. My church hasn't done for me what his church did for him. And so he stepped out of the ministry. And for years and years and years he wandered from church to church and ministry to ministry. He got caught in the trap, the trap of comparison. There's a price to pay for that. Be careful not to do that. It can also be caused sometimes by overwhelming circumstances And again, let's go back to Hezekiah. Look at his prayer. Think of his words. He's lifting his eyes to God, begging God for what? Mercy and help. The reason is because the circumstances of his life have suddenly changed. One day he's in his palace eating a sumptuous meal and everything's going well. Then all of a sudden somebody runs to him from the wall and they say, Hey, you're not going to believe what's out there. The Assyrian army have come to conquer and they, they, they are telling us not to listen to your leadership. They're undermining you because they're saying you're telling us lies, that they're going to conquer us whether we like it or not. And so the overwhelming circumstances of his life sent him to where he would write this psalm of hope, the greatest time of despair in his life. I don't know what it is in your life that sucked the joy out of who you are. It could be a circumstance. Preacher, I... I've got things in my life I struggle with. Why? Well, it may be a mom and a dad that divorced and ripped your heart in two. And you spend one weekend with your daddy and one weekend with your mother. And you wonder why you can't have a home like you used to have. They made a selfish decision. And you pay the price for it with a shattered life. When you're with him, he belittles her. And when you're with her, she belittles him. And so now your heart is torn between the two as to who you're to be loyal to. Maybe it was a dad that humiliated you by having an affair, or maybe it was your mom. Maybe your dad's in prison. Maybe your dad's dead. Maybe, may, maybe nothing you ever do has ever won the approval of your dad or your mom. May, maybe it's that they're both at home, and, and, and you'd like to be out of the home yourself because you can't please them for anything you do. It's never good enough. You're depressed about your relationship with your, with your parents. Maybe your, your home life is a lot more like hell on earth than heaven. There's fighting and battling. and Maybe it's your siblings that are messed up in drugs and, and, and your life is depressing. Maybe your mom has cancer and, and, and you're, you're afraid of, of the unknown. Or, or maybe one of your parents is an alcoholic and you're afraid of the known. You can see where it's heading. But life hasn't been good these last years of your life, and you're distraught. Maybe it's a stepdad. Maybe your mom got remarried, and this man has entered your life, or this woman has entered your life, and, and, and you blame them for robbing you of the joy. And, and they're, they're trying to act like you're their child, and you're not their child, and there's a big battle going on. And after the smoke settles and the battle's over, you go into your room and shut the door, and lay in bed at night and think about how your life just stinks. You've got friends that you wish you could live their life because their family seems to be happy. External conditions can cause internal turmoil. That's what happened in the life of Hezekiah. Now there's a key in verse number 1. If you look there, Hezekiah is facing with all these struggles and yet, in verse number number one, unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Hezekiah stands upon a wall, surrounded by an army that that is not only threatening to crush him, but has a track record. Listen to me, it's playoff time and they're twelve and zero. None of the battles have been close. They've crushed their opponent. They are undefeated. They are unquestionably the mightiest army on earth at this time. And they're knocking on Hezekiah's door and they're saying, you're next on our list, buddy. And so now Hezekiah is staring out at this army 
And yet suddenly in the Scripture we find out that Hezekiah in his darkest time of his administration, he changes his focus and he looks up to God unto thee. I'm not looking at them. Lord, unto thee I lift up mine eyes. And so if we're going to pull out of these deep moments of depression, we've got to learn to change our focus. We've got to look toward God, not toward the problems. Lincoln said, I've been driven to my knees many times by the overwhelming reality that there was no place else to go. Now, you can choose to numb yourself with drugs. Or you can follow your big brother's lead and go off somewhere and, 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 and get drunk. But the reality of the matter, numbing, numbing the problem does not make the problem leave. My gallbladder went out on me a couple of months ago. I was coming back from visiting a little bighorn. My wife had taken me on a, on a birthday trip, and, man, I, I was in intense pain. Lay in the airport for three hours at, um, at Denver, and uh, they got, allowed me to get on the plane. I had to get out of my seat on the plane, lay on the floor. Man, I was the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. They took me to the hospital, and they gave me some stuff to try to help the pain. And then they brought something in called Dilaudid. And man alive, I want to tell you something. When they gave me that, the pain left. I felt really good. Man, I felt like me and my gallbladder were buddies. It's just like, man, we're friends again. This is awesome. This is great. That time I did it with my gallbladder, I just knew something was hurting real bad. You know the problem is? The delighted wore off. And the reality of the matter is we can mask away the struggles of life with liquor and drugs. That's what the world does. But I want to tell you something. It will come back. You, you, can, you can mask it. You can hide it. But, but the reality is numbing it does no good. Sooner or later, it will be back at your door and, and, and we'll, we'll, be, we, we'll be back visiting you. And so rather than taking the, the, the easy way out, we have to face reality and, and we have to keep our focus on the Lord. Do you remember the time in the Bible, when Peter got out of the boat and started walking, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Well, listen, what happened? You can criticize Peter, but I want to tell you something about Peter. He's the only one in the boat that walked on the water. But you know what happened to him? The moment he took his eyes off of the Lord and started looking at all the raging water around him on that Sea of Galilee, he began to sink. That's why the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God the Father. Listen to me. No, no, no. In this world, there's a lot of raging problems. And, 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 and listen, everything's all right in my Father's house. It's one of my favorite songs. But can I tell you something? Sometimes, sometimes uh, the things in our house, it's not all right. So what do we have to do? We have to go to the Father's house. We have to look to the Father. And we have to focus on Him and, and allow His goodness to, to penetrate the troubled times of our life. You have to change your focus. Look at me. You can stare at all of the problems. You can stand on the wall and look out at the army of Assyria and it will never go away. So focusing on your troubles isn't going to help you. Hezekiah said unto thee, I lift up mine eyes. This is bigger than me, God. I can't handle them. I can't win this battle. It's a mess. So I'm just looking to you for help. We've got to change our focus. Number two, let me say this. You must stay in the Word. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah chapter 23 and verse 26 and verse 3. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have all they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Seven years ago, I was in Oklahoma City preaching a revival, and I, and I, and I, 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 I man, I was in the airport. We'd had a great week. I climbed Mount Scott, had a great time. We were in the airport, and some things fell apart on me a little bit. We here again is another physical problem that I never expected. But I wound up in an ambulance after passing out from losing blood. They put me in an ambulance and rushed me to a hospital in Oklahoma City. I came to hearing somebody, my wife's voice, talking about cancer. And it just sort of, you know, that, that pulled me out from under the anesthesia quickly. And I said to her, I said, uh, Susie, somebody talk about cancer. I didn't know she'd been outside crying. And she said to me, she said, yes, Dean. She said, uh, you've got cancer. And they say that they can do the surgery. 
And so I came to and was talking to the doctor. We scheduled the surgery. I said, I want to do it as quick as we can. He said, we can get it done tonight at 8 o'clock. I said, let's roll. Let's get her done. And so they did. The surgeon came in and he said, we got all the cancer. It was early stage. You're not going to have to have any chemotherapy. You're not going to have to have any radiation. You're good to go. Now, when you get back, you'll have to have some CAT scans done every six months. But, 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 but you're good, man. We got it. I went home. Everybody was excited, man. My kids had come for the surgery. and It was just good news. I got home and they, you know, I got in the house and, and uh, man, it, it, was, it was great. Everybody was thankful. Everybody was praising God. And I went and sat in my man cave in my easy chair there. And, and uh, I was kicked back in my easy chair, just resting a little bit. And I thought this great thought, Doug, to, my, to myself. I thought to myself, you know what? I think I'll check the Internet out and see what I had. Son, I went in my office, got on my computer, and clicked in what was going on with me. And you know what? My word. The sun hid behind the clouds. And for three days of my life, I'm being real honest with you, I laid my head on my pillow at night and wept. My wife couldn't lay in the bed because the shifting would hurt me from where they'd cut me open. So she'd go down and sleep down in the office. And I was glad she did because I didn't want her to see her leader crying at night. And I cried at night because I had grandkids I wanted to see grow up. And I had things I wanted to do for God in the ministry. And so, so there I was distraught and, and discouraged uh, because of, uh, of, of the things that I, I had read and, and, and it, was, it was closing in on me, and the walls were getting tighter. Do you know what pulled me through it? I read my Bible every day. I didn't feel like it. I was depressed. I thought I was dying. The doctor later told me, he said, man, you went through the dumbest sight in the whole world. I wonder who directed me there. It was the devil. He said, man, don't read that sight. He said, and he told me, he said, the type of cancer you had, the chances of you ever getting again are minuscule. I felt so good going out, but, you know, the re- reality of the matter is, if I, if I had not listened to the voice of the world, I never would have went through that valley. But, but, but here's, here's, here's the reality behind it. God, God, through His Word, began to build me and encourage me and give me strength. And I want to tell you, there are going to be days when you're going to open this book and you're going to feel like there's nothing in it for me, but read it anyhow. You're going to read it and you're going to say, that, that, that was empty. That's okay. Read it anyhow. Just read it. Listen, every meal that you eat, I can't remember all the meals that my mama cooked me, but I want to tell you, every one of them got me to where I am today. They were all essential. They were all necessary. And every day that you read your Bible may not be a great day, but read it anyhow. Read it anyhow. Stay in the Word. It's the filter that keeps the things out of our life and brings the things into our life that we desperately need. Let me say next, you've got to stay connected. Now, please, I'm asking you, don't, don't, don't miss this part. You, you've got to stay connected. Listen to me. If you're depressed, the worst thing you can do is withdraw. Go into your cave. Close the door behind you. Hide in the darkness of your room or the recesses of your mind. Don't do that. Stay connected, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Don't become isolated. Listen, hey, don't be the Lone Ranger. Commit yourself to your church. Stay right where you are in your youth group. You may be here tonight, and this may be your first time in a meeting like this. Don't let it be your last time. You may be a visitor in your youth group. Listen to me. Fellowship is a Bible word. Plug into the church where you're at. Stay involved with good people that love you and will help you and will counsel you. Don't go off. Don't wander out by yourself. Satan's a roaring lion. You know anything about lions? They, they, they lurk in the long grass waiting on an isolated person to stray off from the, from the herd. And then they pounce. The Bible says, God setteth the solitary in families. Thank God for your church family. Thank God for your youth friends. Stay involved and stay connected to that. Don't let Satan pull you aside. I would also say, remember that God values you. 
Remember that God values you. You know what Paul told the church at Corinth? You're bought with a price. How many of you have ever seen the, the, the reality show? And by the way, there are no, they're, they're, none of them are real. But anyhow, how many of you have ever seen the reality show Pawn Stars? When I'm ready to quit the ministry, I'm going to put on some boxing gloves. I grew up boxing. I'm going to go there and I'm going to work some guys over. I won't have to resign then because I'll already have resigned and I'll just get the frustration out. Idiots. That's a Greek word for not smart. But anyhow, I, I, listen, here's a guy that comes. I, I'll sit there and I'll tell my wife, you know, here's something worth $1,700. They'll give him $3.50 for it and he sells it. A guy came in and he said, here's my dad's, uh, here, here, here's my grandfather's World War II flight log where he logged all of the flights, 75 missions, this, this, this is his headset. These are his goggles. This is his flight jacket. These are his boots. These came from my grandfather. I want to sell them. How much do you want for them? I'd like $4,000. He wound up selling them for like 600 bucks. My wife had to give me a sedative. I wanted to reach through the TV and slap him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You will take, you will take that valued possession of your grandfather's and sell it, undersell it, devalue it cheaply. Yet we do that so much with ourselves. Now I want you to look at me. Look at me. The highest price ever paid for anything in the history of the entire universe was paid for you. Nothing ever, nothing ever has been bought with the price that you were bought with. God gave His Son to be brutalized on Calvary's tree, crucified, cursed, spat upon, and pierced with a spear, all because He loved you. The greatest price ever paid for anything was paid for you. I would say this, and, and, and I'm going to close quickly, but don't let your struggles define you. Don't let your struggles define you. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Look, Paul is saying, look, I've got problems in my life. I've been persecuted, I've been in distress, I've been shipwrecked, I've been cursed. Uh, people have tried to kill me. But I'm a conqueror. I'm, I'm more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Now, now listen to me. You can't change everything in your story. But you get to determine whether or not it's the central theme of it. There may be a stepdad. There may be a broken home. There may be a drug addiction with your mom. There may be a dad in prison. There may be something really bad that's shaken you up and depressed you. But you don't have to let that be every chapter of your life. Make it a footnote. If it's so big that it's a chapter in your life, turn the page and write another chapter. Be something else besides what your dad was, or your oldest brother was, or your oldest sister was. Don't, don't write the same story they've written in their life. When the black dog comes around, don't pet it. Don't let it become the theme of your conversations. And last of all, I want to say this, and that is simply, listen, please don't, don't lose this. Don't ever forget that God has a purpose for your life. Man may give up on you. You may have friends that give up on you. Your mom or dad may tell you, you ain't ever going to amount to anything, son. You're good for nothing. You'll never amount to a hill of beans. You are useless. You may have heard that your whole life, but you'll never hear it from God. God's got a purpose for your life. He's got... He's got He's got a reason for you to be here. Churchill struggled with the black dog. Churchill wrestled with depression. Rather than letting it define his life, he authored 33 books. He painted over 500 paintings. And he went out and saved the world. 
God's got a reason for you to be here. It's okay to battle depression. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to sometimes feel like you've got the breath sucked out of you. What's not okay is to give in. O Lord, unto thee, Hezekiah said, I lift up mine eyes. God will not only help you survive your downtimes, He'll help you thrive as His child if you'll turn your eyes to Him. You may be here tonight, down deep inside. If you were to die, you don't know that you'd go to heaven. That's a pretty dark thought. That's, that's, that's pretty heavy. To pillow your head every night of your life not knowing for sure that if you were to die in the middle of the night that you'd go to heaven thinking that perhaps your eternal future is hell. That's a very, very deep and a very, very dark place to go in your mind. And there's no need for that. Jesus will save you. He'll write your name in a book that, that secures your reservation through His blood. You can become a child of God tonight. Before you ever you pillow your head at night again, you can have the blessed assurance that you're saved and that you're on way, your way to heaven. Maybe, maybe you struggle tonight. Maybe you're here. You're preacher, I'm saved. Boy, I just have some dark times in my life. Well, I want to just tell you, listen to me. Look at me. You're, you're, it's okay. Hey, look at me. No, no, no. No, it's okay. It's all right. You're not abnormal. You're not weird. There's nothing wrong with you mentally. You just struggle with some things. And there can, listen, there are people here that can help you. If, if you will just go to them, people will pray with you and pray for you and give you advice based on this book. And soak your mind in this book. And this book will bring light to you. It's a light unto our path. It's a lamp to our feet. It'll help, help us. Let's bow our heads. Every head bowed and every eye closed. How many of you that are here by an uplifted hand, nobody's looking around, just, just every head bowed, how many of you would be just transparent and honest enough to say, Preacher, there are times in my life that I struggle with depression. Teenagers, adults, would you just lift your hand? Okay, good. God bless you. Everywhere. Good. Thank you. Hey, thank you for your honesty. Just put your hands down. I want to tell you, it's okay. I want to tell you that, that, that God knows you and that God loves you and that God can give you the strength that can come from no place else. Stay, stay, stay. Don't leave. Don't walk out on the Lord. Stay close to Him. God's the one that can bring healing. And in the darkest times, when the lights dim and the walls close in, stay in the book. Just stay in the book. Stay in the book. Stay in the book every day. Read it. God will bring you through the other side. How many of you would raise your hand and say, Preacher, if I were to die today, well, I don't really know I'm going to heaven. And that's a struggling thought with me. But I'd like to settle that before it's too late. Preacher, here's my hand. Would you just lift it? Pray for me. I'm not saved. If I died today, I don't know that I'd go to heaven. Would you just lift your hand? Preacher, pray for me. Here's my hand. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of my own salvation. I'd like to settle that before it's too late. I'm not going to come to you and embarrass you. I'm just going to pray for you. All right? If that's your case, would you go to your youth pastor or your, your pastor and and just tell them, I, I, need to, I need to accept Christ as my Savior. Would you do that? Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you stand. Your head's going to be bowed. And I want everybody to have the liberty to just come pray. You may be praying for yourself. You may be praying for your mom or your dad or your brother. You may be praying for someone else that's got depression in their life. But at this altar, why don't we get transparent tonight? Why don't we stop comparing ourselves and wondering what other people think? Why don't we just come down to an altar and pray before God and confess our need and confess the struggle that we're going through? Would you stand to your feet? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would do your work in our lives. Help us, dear God, I pray, to realize that there are things in our life that, that can plague us. But you're the God of it all. 
You're greater. You're greater than all of the struggles of our life. Help us, I pray, that we would turn our eyes towards you and trust you for the answers. In Jesus' name. Heads bowed and eyes closed as we have this sands of invitation. Why don't you come right now? Just find yourself a place. That's right. God bless you. Come on. Good. Good. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's concerned with who's coming and who's not. Just find yourself a place at the altar. Mean business with God. Lord, I got struggles in my heart, struggles in my mind. There are times I'm depressed in my home life, my future. It seems like, it seems like something's laid seeds to my life. Sometimes I feel like there's a dark cloud hanging over me. Sometimes I feel like I don't have much value. I don't know why God would use me. I don't know why God has a purpose for my life. Bring it to Him. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You're not telling God about anything that God doesn't already know about you. Just pour your heart out to the Lord. Trust God for mercy. Unto thee, O Lord, lift up mine eyes. Give us mercy, Lord. Give us mercy.